For those of you who may not know, a little self-disclosure from me this morning, I would die for four things in my life. I would die for Christ. I would die for my wife. I would die for my children. And fourth, I would die for the Syracuse Orangemen. And for those of you who are into college basketball, you know that one of the great runs in the history of college basketball took place this weekend. And as I told a friend on the phone last night, nothing will prepare you for worship like a good victory by the orange. All right? It brought a certain center to my life. All right? I say that actually as a segue into my message because this text is really about, seriously about, getting a center, in a sense, in your life. It's about getting kind of a, a sort of, a, of an equilibrium whereby you understand life and can function in the qualitative experience of life the way God designed for you to live. Because a lot of us living under the sun here in this world, in, in, as a friend of mine used to say, a mentor of mine, in a rat race where all the rats are winning, living here in this world, sometimes it can be a beatdown, if we're honest, can't it? All of us go throughout a week and we experience this. And we all need to have a place where we can kind of draw to some point of a center in our life. Maybe a place where we can just rest a little bit. You know, it's amazing. I was talking with a guy that I met on the airplane this weekend. We actually met, struck up a relationship with him. A buddy of mine and I went out to dinner with him and some colleagues of his. They're in town for a convention. We went out to dinner Friday night. And as we were driving around, we were commenting on having small children. And uh, some of you are, are new. we have some even brand new parents among us. Having small children, you know you're the parents of small children when you get a hotel room just so you can get sleep, right? I mean, that's essentially what it is. So two reasons. You can get sleep, and then you can actually carry on a conversation for more than five seconds without being interrupted. It's a, it's a whole new experience for young couples, right? Just wanting some rest. And sometimes I feel like that a little bit in life. Just wanting some rest. This text is about how Jesus is our superior leader who leads us to this rest. Now, the author of Hebrews is going to use the concept of rest as a type of metaphor to speak about eternal life, but what it focuses on, each, every metaphor is going to focus on some principle or some object, and it's going to draw out some specific nuance of that object. What this concept of rest draws out is the quality of your eternal life, that qualitative experience, so that when I share the gospel with someone, I tell them, you're going to trust in Jesus Christ, who is going to redeem you from your sin, who's going to purchase a home for you in heaven, and who's going to give you new life right here and right now. See? The beauty of Jesus is that when he invades, it's this faith bond that explodes and has consequences, and things change, and life isn't what it used to be. That's the intent of the gospel, is that it brings to me a bit of heaven in the here and now, and that's some of what this idea of rest that he's going to talk about. He's talking about how Jesus is a superior leader, and you'll notice this is part two, because what we talked about last week in part one is how Jesus was compared to Moses, and Moses led the people out of Egypt through the Red Sea, through all their groanings, all their moanings, all their complainings, and he leads them, and his intent is to lead them into what was termed through the Old Testament the promised land, this land promised by God to be a place that would be a haven of rest, a place of blessing, of fruitfulness, where God's people would dwell underneath God's governance and God's blessing. Well, along the way, 
they forfeit that opportunity, at least that one generation forfeits that opportunity because of their disobedience and their rebellion. And even Moses loses his temper, whacks the rock when he's supposed to speak to it, water's supposed to come out, it comes out, but God is not pleased because of his disobedience and because of his anger and frustration. And so even Moses himself doesn't get to enter. They failed to enter the rest. This place of God's blessing, this place that was intended for them all along their journey. And he's using it as a metaphor to say, you and I are on journey somewhere. We are on journey toward entering ultimately God's eternal rest. And we can get a taste of it here and now, is what the author is going to tell us. I want you to look with me in Hebrews chapter 1. I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, in light of what he said and what I just told you about the story of Moses, Since the promise of entering his rest still stands, well, why does it still stand? Because those people didn't enter his rest. And even when they got in the land, he's going to see later on, even when they got in the land, what happened? They didn't didn't do what they were supposed to in the land. They didn't clean out the land completely, and so they dwelled with peoples who they ended up intermarrying with, and it caused problems down the road. They never fully did what God had told them to do that that were the prerequisites for blessing. So he says, since this promise of his rest still stands... Let us be careful. And if you like to underline in your Bibles, you might underline, let us be careful. And I'll tell you for this reason. In the Greek language, what this word literally says is, let us fear. Let us fear. And in the Greek language, when you want to make a point, you put what you want to say in the front portion of the sentence, right at the beginning, and that becomes what is the points of emphasis in the Greek sentence. Well, in the Greek language... That word, let us be, the words for let us be careful, that's the beginning of the sentence. That would be at the front of the Greek Bible if you were reading your, a Greek New Testament. The point is, he's saying, you better pay attention so much so that you understand in a fearful context that what we are speaking about, about entering this rest, is a significant issue. In fact, the author of Hebrews might write in a side note, life and death hang in the balance. Let us be careful, let us fear, pay attention, that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. That none of you are found to have not walked through this door. As he begins, he begins talking about what we would call the door to the rest. He's walking through and he's beginning his argument and saying, here's the rest, and he's giving this picture of almost like walking through a door or progressing along your journey and you're moving forward. He says, you've made a confession of Christ. You've professed faith in Christ. Now, live out that profession. Give evidence to the reality of that conversion and walk according to what God would have you to do. Don't let any of you be found to have fallen short of it. For he says in verse 2, we also have had the gospel, the good news, preached to us just as they did. Now, what good news was preached in the Old Testament? The gospel of Christ wasn't fully disclosed and opened up in the the Old Testament. We see some things in shadowy terms. We see prophecies of one who would come and redeem the world. We see things like that. But we don't see the gospel laid out clearly in the Old Testament. The word for gospel is just the word for good news. And he's saying they had good news preached to them. What, What was the good news? Follow God's principles and you'll live a life of blessing and abundance and fruitfulness. It's a land, the Old Testament said, flowing with milk and honey is the idea. This beautiful poetic picture. 
What a place of fruitfulness if only you will follow the standard, if only you will obey the voice of God, the Word of God. Which, by the way, at the end of our text this morning, he'll wrap it all up with that thought. Draw us right back to are we listening to the voice of God? If you listen, you'll be blessed. He says they had the good news preached to them just as they did. We had the good news preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them. Why? Because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Don't miss that. That's so central to this whole idea. The message didn't mean a hill of beans to them. Why? Because it was an empty word from God to them because they didn't respond. This week was a challenging week for me personally. I flew up Monday morning to bury my grandmother. On Wednesday, we buried her, had a spectacular time at a funeral. Her pastor in this small country church stood up and preached a funeral message for her from Proverbs. Uh, no, I take that back, not from Proverbs. He preached a funeral message from Psalm 116. And as he got up, he walked through Psalm 116, and he came to something, and I was sitting next to my father at the time. And both my father and I looked at each other, and one thing in this funeral stuck out to both of us. And it was interesting. It was it, that it, it so grabbed us that he would say this, and knowing my grandmother and his mother, the truth of what he said. And I thought a long time about it. And I thought, you know what, it's so profound that I think it's really the essence of the Christian life. Now, it's going to sound real basic, but here's what he said. My grandmother's name was Madeline. He said, Madeline, in her life, always did one thing. She always responded to the truth. And I thought about my grandmother's life, and I thought the errors that she made were almost always the result of naivety or ignorance. They were almost never the result of open rebellion. I won't say never, but almost never. It usually was she was uninformed, not that she was informed and then chose to go a different path. She's real different than me. I've got to be honest. I, I find out what to do, and I go, eh, heading this way, right? I'm like the rest of you, just a bunch of wretched sinners. That's kind of how we live. But she always responded to the truth. And he's saying here to them, listen, be careful that you don't fall short of this. Dare I say, pay attention. Because here's the door. Walk through the door and enter the rest. These people, he's saying, in the Old Testament didn't respond to it. You have the opportunity to respond, and he'll say later, as he said before, even while it's called today. Now's the time. Respond. What are you waiting for? Do it. Respond to the truth. Because if you don't respond to the truth, the truth is an abstract concept that does you no good just out in the ether somewhere. But to bring it to your life is to allow your decisions and the truth of God to come together and to form a synergy that I'm going to tell you something creates a qualitative experience of life that is amazing. Amazing. Because if you're a believer and you make wrong choices, how do you feel? You don't feel too hot. You've got internal unrest. Sometimes you've got anger and frustration. You can't even quite pinpoint why you feel the way you feel, but you know things just aren't quite right. Guess what? That's what sin does. It just kind of discombobulates you inside. It makes a mess of you internally. But when you take truth and you respond to it, peace, dare I say, rest as a result of it. So he talks to him about the, this concept of the door of rest and, Entering the rest. 
You've got to combine it with faith. Salvation comes to us, and by salvation, what I mean is spending eternity with God comes to us by grace through faith alone. That's it. Don't need to add anything else. That's the message of the New Testament. Then the New Testament adds to that and says that faith that you have and you have in singularity and alone is this bomb that explodes, and all of a sudden you find out that this faith that you had alone wasn't alone. (laughs) And there are some incredible things that result from it. I want to talk to you about the origin of this rest, and he gets into this in verses 3 through 5. Where does this come from? Now, this is where it gets confusing, and you read through this, and, and it's easy to go. He's kind of got this argument from the Old Testament. Here, let me just give you the summary up front, and then we'll read through it. What he's saying is this. He's calling people to enter a rest in an experience with God, wherein, and listen carefully to my words, carefully, they're carefully chosen, wherein you enter a rest that mirrors the quality of life that God has. I did not say where you become equal to God or become yourself a God. That is, a, that is not at all a biblical teaching. The Bible doesn't teach us that. The Bible teaches us that we can have an experience of life that resembles the wonderful experience of life that God has. That's eternal life. That's a qualitative life. It's a gift from God to us that we can experience. So that when I enter the rest, what am I entering? I'm entering into this experience of life that has similarity to the experience that God has. A ceasing from some things. And we're going to talk about that. Now look at verse 3. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. If you've trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, nothing you can do, no works on your part, just simply trusting in what He did on the cross to take away your sin, if that's you, then you've entered that rest. That's what He's saying. He didn't say you might. He didn't say you could. He didn't say, but, you know, then change your ways and then you'll enter that rest. He didn't say that. He says, then you have entered that rest. It's already happened, is the idea. What does that mean? That means the rest he's talking about is not just what happens when you die and go to heaven. He's saying the rest includes a qualitative experience of eternal life right now. What's going on in your life when you're transformed, when things are different? Friday night, a friend of mine, Lance, who's here with me this morning from Texas, we had the privilege of going to lunch with some people I'd met on the airplane. Um, and uh, Italian guys from Long Island grew up in Brooklyn, Rocky Balboa, you know, you talking to me, what are you doing? How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? And, I, you know, and I, you know I, I was back in my New York ways, you know, I could put on a little Joe Pesci and talk the lingo with them, you know. So I'm sitting across, and here I am, Lance is a police officer, and I've got three Italians from Long Island, so I'm protected no matter what, all right? <laughs> I got my hedge of protection right around me. And we're eating down in, in uh, Salt Lake City at an Italian restaurant, and at, big surprise, and as we're, as we're eating, I've got to tell you this, I had, personally, I can't speak for everyone at the table, but I can tell you this, I had one of the most strengthening times of fellowship I've had in probably five to seven years at that table with people I didn't know. Some of them I didn't meet until I got at the table. And by the time we're done, we're hugging each other. I'm going to pray for you. I'll pray for you. You know, we're showing each other class pictures and stuff. I mean, it was just amazing, you know. Incredible experience connecting with these people. 
that God had given rest to. See, you get glimpses here of what heaven will be like there. If you don't know Christ, let me just share this with you as an aside. If you don't know Christ, here's how you connect in your relationships. You connect on a physical plane, you connect on an emotional plane, and you connect on a social plane. If you know Christ, you connect on all those three, and you connect on a spiritual plane. That's why you and another believer can go deeper with each other than anyone else you know. You can experience a qualitative life experience in relationship more intimate. I sit down with some guys I disciple, and I walk away, and I've said it before, I walk away and I go, isn't that incredible? I couldn't, I couldn't, if I didn't know Christ, I couldn't sit down like this and have this connection with people. I couldn't, because I'm connecting on three of the four pistons, but one of them isn't working. One of them isn't driving. When you know Christ, you experience a glimpse of heaven here. So he's saying, you've already entered this rest, if that's the case. So now he goes, and he's going to show that it was God's rest, and you're just having a part in it. Look in verse 3 at the end. Just as God has said, now he quotes, So I declared on my oath and my anger, they'll never enter. And the point of his quote is this last phrase, my rest. You circle, underline, tattoo it on your back if you want to. My. My rest. It's God's rest. I'm participating in in a quality of life that God participates in and has reserved for me. That's the idea. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere, and I love how he says this, somewhere in there he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. That somewhere is Genesis 2.2. On the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above he says they shall never enter my rest. God's rest. He's saying God worked. He created the world. And after creating the world, it says, then God rested. Then God steps back into the quality of life that is commensurate with who He is. The point He's making is, if you've come to Christ, you have the privilege of living the life that was originally designed for you. It's a beautiful, beautiful thought. And it should radically transform our concept of life in the here and now. We shouldn't look at life the same. Now, I want to give you a little, what I'd call kind of a little theology of rest. And I, and I want to really kind of walk through this because this is important to this concept. Because entering the rest is one thing, and sometimes, though, in the middle of a fallen world, experiencing the rest is a little bit different. Uh, it, it's a little bit more of a challenge with all that we have to deal with at times here in a fallen world. Entering the rest, essentially, in, in, in the Bible, if you were to do a study of the concept of rest, working from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, it centers on three ideas. It's a, it's a cessation or a ceasing from three things. Okay? The first is it's a ceasing from work. The second is a ceasing from war. And, that, and what that usually is applied to is Israel in the Old Testament. They'd have rest in the land, meaning they would have rest from people around them, warring against them, if only they would live a life that was underneath God's blessing through obedience. It's a ceasing from work. It's a ceasing from war. And then the New Testament comes along and says it's a ceasing from worry, uh, internal strife, internal trouble. I want you to think about for a minute about the concept of a ceasing from work. It doesn't mean that I'm in, you, know, you don't go into your employer and your excuse is, well, I'm in Jesus. I don't need to work. What are you, what are you calling me for? I'm a Christian. <laughs> Send a check. It's in the mail. Uh, no, you'll get canned, rightfully so, and that's God's judgment on you. The reality is, it's a ceasing, and, and here's, here's a, a thought for you. 
How many times has someone come up to you? I'm guilty of this all the time. Somebody come to you and said, how are you doing? And you respond this way. You know, I'm doing okay, but <laughs> I'm busy. Just so busy. I mean, you know, daily grind, under the gun, hectic, yada, 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 yada. Busy. Busyness is killing us. Can I tell you that? It's killing us. Because busyness is not really to do with tasks as much as it is to do with a state of mind. As much as it is to do with our understanding, even of our life in Christ, to a degree. Because if I'm busy, what do I hate more than anything else? Interruptions. I don't like interruptions. Henry Nouwen once said that he looked at his life for a long time and he was working and working and working and he used to hate the interruptions until he realized that the interruptions were his work. Because, see, God in his sovereignty infuses your life with meaning, which means he infuses your moments with meaning, which means he infuses all the things that happen in those moments with the potential for great meaning, if only we'll lay hold of it and see it as that and live in that moment. As Jim Elliott said, wherever you are, be all there. And focus our hearts toward that. You know, the Chinese, when they, the, the Chinese word written out for busyness, do you know what it is? It's two characters that come together. One is the character for to kill or killed. The other is the character for heart. The point being that busyness kills the heart. And it's a good lesson for us that we can get so busy doing things that we are convinced are so important because they further our agenda and we're missing the things around us that God has sovereignly put in front of us to teach us more about life, to infuse our life with meaning, to give us purpose, to define our lives. And we miss them because we're so busy. Came along an illustration, and I want to share it with you. Um, my favorite author, you've heard of him. Uh, you hear about him once every couple of weeks. His name is Mark Buchanan. And this is Mark's new book, uh, The Rest of God. I would encourage you, by the way, to, uh, to pick this up. Um, it is a, it's a profound profound read. In this book, he talks about restoring not the concept of the Old Testament Sabbath of a day that we set apart just solely, but to return to the concept of Sabbath as an important principle for living not only a successful life, but really the life God designed us to live. In this, he opens a chapter, and I want to tell you the story and then read a section from it. He tells about his wife's grandmother. Her name was Alice. Mark lives in British Columbia, and in British Columbia, of course, Years and years ago, prospectors ran to British Columbia, much like they did California, Oregon, Washington State, looking for gold. And they would come in, and, and Grandma Alice grew up in the context of the gold rush. And she saw men who were wide-eyed and giddy at the thought of finding treasure somewhere and thought it just to be kind of ridiculous folly and that they were really sacrificing their family at the expense of it. So one day, Grandma Alice, now an elderly woman, was out in her garden, and she had this huge boulder out in her garden that she couldn't move, but it was in the garden, and so she thought she would make the most of it, and she would shine up the rock and, and get it looking nice so that it would be appealing to those that would come visit her and see the garden. So she's out there with a cloth, and she's shining, 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 shining away at this, and all of a sudden, she's, as she, she's shining and kind of grinding away, she sees some gold dust appear. She's intrigued. She continues to shine, continues to shine more rapidly, and her heart is picking up its beat a little bit, and she shines and she shines, and she sees more gold dust. 
And, and, and now she's starting to feel a little bit of the expectation, a little bit of the anticipation that those same people who had rushed in years before experienced this giddiness at the thought of finding treasure, and she's captivated by it, and she continues to shine and continues to shine, and she pulls back her hand and she looks, and she realizes that she's been wearing away her wedding ring on the rock the entire time. And she's worn it thin. Uh, Buchanan says, thin as a cheese slicer. She's worn it. Buchanan reflects on this. And he talks about how the first time he heard it, he laughed. But only the first time. Because he began to think about this old woman so captivated by this temporal treasure that unbeknownst to her, she was wearing away eternal things. And here's what he says. Listen carefully. But it's also sad because... Much of my own life I've repeated again and again Grandma Alice's mistake. I've squandered treasures in pursuit of dust. I've eroded precious, irreplaceable things in my efforts to extract something that's not actually there. I've imagined I'm on the trail of a groundbreaking discovery only to find I'm at the tail end of a hard loss. Here are a few. All the times I never swam in a cool lake with my children, made a snowman or baked sugar cookies with them lingering in bed with my wife on a Saturday morning or helped a friend in need, all because I was in a hurry to, well, that's just it. I don't remember what. Here's the point. We get so caught with our own agenda and we're running headlong after it that we've forgotten that all the things that are around us, those relationships, our time with the Lord, these things that where we rub against each other in eternal ways are the substantive things of life. And our agenda is prostituting our affections toward it instead of the things that are more substantive. Work becomes for us a grind, hectic, and it becomes ultimately our God. You know what work says? Work essentially says that you are God and it deifies yourself. Why? Because now everything depends on you. It depends on you finishing the task. It depends on you meeting the agenda. It depends on you getting it done before the dates. It depends upon your focus, your attentiveness. Is that really so? You know what? Take the interruptions, not as interruptions, but take them as the winds of a sovereign God blowing something new into your agenda and embrace it. Embrace it. Love it. Enjoy it. Live for it. In doing that, you're beginning to experience a little bit of the rest. You really are. Because the quality life experience with God is one in which all these things are infused with meaning and my heart is focused rather than being worked up. Cessation of work, then it's a cessation of war from your enemies. Doesn't mean it completely knocks them away, but it means it does give you a leg up on victory. And the third is this, and I want you to flip back in your Bibles, keep your finger in Hebrews, flip back in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 11. In Matthew 11, Jesus brings this concept to bear. And I want you to look with me in verse 28. Ah, look in verse 27 before that. Matthew 11, 27. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. He's making very crystal clear for us. You have one way to God, that is through 
Jesus through Jesus. That's it. That's exclusively the truth. The Bible makes that claim. Whether you accept that or reject that, just don't, please, don't ever say the Bible doesn't teach Jesus as exclusively true. That, that's just not reading literature well. That's all it is. The Bible teaches that. So he says here, verse 28, in light of that, if the Son is the way to the Father, he says, come to me. Now, if you come to me with a problem, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to say to you is, I'm going to begin to give you some direction. If you come to me and want to know how to get somewhere, I'm going to say, here's where you go to find it. If you come to me with an issue, I'm going to say, here's what maybe you need to do to help contribute to rectifying it and changing things and turning the corner. Here's what you need to do. But I'm not going to come to you. If you come to me, I'm not going to respond to you by saying, you know what the solution to this problem is? Woohoo! Right here, baby. I'll solve it. I'm the guy. You don't need it. There's no other answer. I'm the answer right here. The answer. Uh, you know what? That doesn't make for a real good pastor. In fact, it makes for a pretty much an arrogant jerk in life, right? What does Jesus say? He doesn't say, go over here, do this, do this. He says, come to me. He's the one individual in human history that resolves your problems just because of his person and his presence. Come to me, he says. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And that we could all raise our hand. All different burdens. All different weariness. None of it looks alike. All of it's nuanced. Because we have personality traits and characteristics and we see life through different complexities. We've got different baggage from our past. We've got a different future. We're living in different present realities. But guess what? We all got burdens and we all have a weariness. He says, come to me. All who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. I'll give it to you. I'll provide it for your soul. I'll feed you from my bounty. You can drink from my cup and be refreshed. So here's the point. There's nothing wrong with psychology. It's a beautiful thing. There's nothing wrong with some healthy sociology. There's nothing wrong with some of the programs that our culture devises. But if you're looking for the answer to difficulty in life, and if you don't start at the cross of Christ, and you don't start with the person of Jesus and work your way back, then you started at the wrong point, and you're going to end at the wrong place. Come to me. Come to me, he says. Our rest in our experience of a qualitative life is hinged on one thing, our connectedness to Jesus, period. So he goes on and says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Turn back to the book of Hebrews and look in verse 6 with me. Book of Hebrews, verse six, chapter 4, verse 6. Real quick, I'm going to run through this. He says, it still remains that some will enter that rest. In other words, it's still available, and this is a promise from God, that it's not a promise in vain. Some are going to enter that rest, meaning, it's a metaphor, meaning some are going to embrace Christ and have eternal life. I trust that's you here. Some are going to do that. If it's not, no, it's open for you. And those who formerly had the good news preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. 
he tends to view, the author of Hebrews kind of views obedience and faith on kind of two sides of a similar coin. Certainly it starts with faith. Obedience is the product of it. But at times he'll speak about your obedience to the gospel, in a sense. Your obedience in response to the gospel. Therefore God again said a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before today, going back to the quote from Psalm 95 that is quoted in chapter 3, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He's saying, listen, I'm speaking a message to you. Remember, this is a sermon that was preached. I'm speaking a message to you. Enter the rest. You can walk through. It starts with God. You can experience a qualitative life that's unlike the life you experienced prior to this. You can experience that, but you've got to respond to it while it's called today. Don't wait. Don't wait. Enter it now, he says. Make the choice. Talking recently with someone, I shared with them, they shared with me that they were struggling with the thought of coming to Christ. And finally, I looked at them and I said, let me ask you a question. What are you going to leave behind? Really? What is so wonderful about what you're leaving? And they had to look and say, not a lot. What are you going to get? Wow, yeah, some, some pretty amazing. <laughs> then what's, what's the problem? Make the call. Do it. Watch God meet you on the other side. Enter the rest is the point. While well, it's called the day, he says. For if Joshua, and if you have a King James Bible this morning, what that says in your King James Bible is, for if Jesus had given them rest, because the Greek word is Jesus, this is, Jesus is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew Joshua, okay? It's the same name. Joshua is just it in Hebrew. Jesus is it in Greek. We should read this as Joshua. He is making another allusion back to the Old Testament. So the King James translators did not get this right, friends. This is, this is something that they, they, just, they just transliterated it, meaning they took the word, the letters, and they brought them out, and it spelled Jesus. But it's a reference back to Joshua, same name, Referring back to Joshua in history, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. But he did. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Sabbath. This concept in the Old Testament commanded, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. In the two places that the law is given in Exodus and Deuteronomy, when he speaks about remembering the Sabbath day, he links it to two concepts. First, in Exodus, he links it to creation. Remember the Sabbath day because on the seventh day God rested. In Deuteronomy, he says, remember the Sabbath day because you were released from Egypt and I led you out. What's the point? Remember the Sabbath, enter into an experience of rest because two reasons. You were created for that and you were liberated for that. So enter into that experience because through creation and liberation, that was your divine design. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. So he says anybody who comes into God's rest stops their own work. I often refer to this verse in sharing with people, your salvation is not about what you do. It is about what Christ has done for you. It is a cessation of your works and resting in the finished work of Christ. It's not about you. If you enter the rest, you cease from your own works. doesn't mean you don't do anything for God, but guess what you're doing? You're just living out the work of Christ. You're living out the gospel. Cease from your own work, just as God also did from His. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Don't be like those in the old, under the Old Covenant, Old Testament, he's saying. 
And then he comes to this section here, and I'm wrapping up with this idea. His conclusion is, verse 12, he talks about the unchanging nature and eternal nature of the Word of God. Because it's his Word all along the way that constantly came to them and said, turn your hearts, turn your hearts, turn your hearts. Listen to my voice. Pay careful attention. Fear me. Obey. Enter the rest. Enter the rest. Constant exhortation through the Old Testament, through the prophets, directly from God, through Moses as a leader, through Joshua as a leader, through some of their own writings, and on and on and on the exhortations go. And on and on they went into the New Testament, and on they still go from the living word Jesus to the written word here for you and I. And the big message is, respond to the truth. And so he says in verse 12, for the word of God, this is not speaking specifically about the written word. It's not speaking specifically about Jesus as the living word. It's saying, for all that God says, whatever God says is the idea, is living and active. The word active is from which we get our word, uh, Greek word, we get our English word energy. It's active. It's constantly moving. Constantly moving. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It is dissecting. It penetrates to the dividing soul and spirit. These are all metaphors just to say it gets into the inner being and cuts you open like a surgeon who's doing exploratory surgery. And guess what? The hard part is God doesn't give you anesthetic and he wakes you up if you've fallen asleep and says, look inside you so you see the problem. Because I'm going to work in you and through you to fix this thing. Dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it discerns, it dissects, it discerns, the judges, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It cuts right to us, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Listen carefully as I close. It's laid bare. It's a Greek word that means that was used as a wrestling term of laying hold. I thought of grabbing someone that had been aggravating me lately and demonstrating this up here. Mark, come on up. Just kidding. Okay. No. <laughs> it's horrible. Laid, laid bare is this Greek term, a wrestling term, where you would lay hold of somebody by the neck and it was some type of a hold, maybe um, the equivalent to uh, Hulk Hogan you know, or, or Jake the Snake with the DDT for all of you who grew up in that. But you'd lay hold somehow of, a, of someone, and you would expose them, lay them prostrate is the idea, through this grappling hold. The word has, it, the first part of the word is the word trach, from which we get tracheotomy, our neck. You'd lay hold of the neck, spin them around, lay them prostrate is the idea. And he's saying, that's what the word of God does to you. It lays hold of you, flips you over, and exposes you and exposes me for who we really are. Who we really are. And we don't like it. We don't. We don't like it because of what it demands from us, and we don't like it because of what it says about the way the world works. So I'm on the plane. I got done talking to Johnny Prezzesario Defino. I don't know what his last name was, but right next to me. His buddy Bruce next to him, who was a believer in Christ who'd been working on Johnny for years. 
And here and I, we just tag teamed. I mean, we just, you know, all but the Greek neck hold, you know. And for a couple of hours talking about Jesus. And then there's this guy over here named Al. And Al was also Italian. And Al was flirting with every woman that had legs on the plane. And Al gets up, and after about this long flight, about four and a half hours, after about four hours of this flight, Al gets up and he walks over. So you're a pastor, eh? Yeah. We start talking a little bit. And he's asking me some questions about the historicity of the Bible and stuff like this. And he's a lawyer, so he's kind of amassing. We're having our own little Jesus moment right here with lawyers challenging him. And not that I'm Jesus, don't get me wrong. So here we're having at it. And he looks at me, and out of, kind of out of the blue, really, it didn't pertain to what he had asked before, he says, hey, you know, I read that thing, and Jesus says, if you're going to get there, you know, talking about heaven, if you're going to get there, it's only through me. He got the message of the Bible. He said, what's that all about? Well, that's not a royal road to walk down. So I shared with him, I said, you know, he said, he said what do you think about that? And I said, I think that's exclusively and absolutely true. Well, he looked at me and said, I got a problem with that. And I thought, yeah, well, you're supposed to. <laughs> he said, that means, that, that means nine-tenths of the world is all damned. And so we began a conversation about how do you define what truth is as we walk through this. This incredible opportunity opened by someone who had glanced at the Word of God, responding to the Word of God, at least questioning things about the Word of God, And now God getting ready with his word to lay someone bare, open them up, and begin to feed truth into their soul. I tell you that to tell you this. As a believer in Christ, how does that relate to you? The word of God is what changes your worldview and feeds your soul. And if you're not spending time in it, then you better get time in it. Because if you want to live this life successfully, don't look any farther. It's going to correspond to your time in his word, I promise you. No time in his word translates into a rough experience. Time in his word doesn't mean it's a rose garden, but I can tell you this. It means that you're entering into the qualitative experience God designed for you. Life's going to be better on the other side of that. His word speaks his truth, and his truth is respond to his call for belief and obedience, and life will be different. Bow with me in prayer. You're a good God. We thank you. Give us rest from all that's around us, the hubbub of life, the race where we feel like we're getting whipped on, the times when we feel discouraged, depleted, times when we feel and wonder whether or not uh, there's really a method to this madness. Speak to us. Help us to enter the rest and then once upon entering, experience the joy that comes and the rest that comes from orchestrating our life aright to you. Bless us this day in Jesus' name.